Welcome, everyone, to the Tori Says Show. Today is the 16th of February. And um, I thought we'd kick it off with a bit of a placement. So I did tell you that I wanted to phase out DLive, and that was because I was getting a bit of a notion to move it along. Uh, the only people allowed on there are those that, um, well, I'll leave it at. So um, I'm phasing out DLive unwillingly. I knew something was coming. I just didn't know when. Uh, and there we go. So for those of you on YouTube that are still waiting on YouTube, you know, they have every right to remove my stuff. So, oh, you know, always on Twitch and on Trovo uh, has cooler graphics too and a lot more interactivity, let's just say. So um, today, let's just kind of, you know, take a, take a think for a second of what is happening and what is going on. You know, we're seeing that uh, there were crimes committed during a trial for an impeachment of someone who is no longer president. New emails reveal that the FBI and the DOJ premeditated an effort to dislodge the president of the United States from office. Um, wait a minute. So what you're telling me is now you have evidence that they colluded to usurp our government now that President Trump is apparently supposedly out of office. Like I said, six years. Two plus four is six. So um, now this is coming forward, I see. I see this higher loyalty that the book describes. I see. So now we have Comey in a bow. Huh. Now. And you expect the Justice Department to investigate this. I see. See, James Comey had emailed James Clapper. So whoever gave you that, um, oh, James Clapper is working for a stop. People sing, but they don't sing the whole song. James Comey had emailed James Clapper and said that the FBI was not sufficiently able to corroborate the reporting. Yet, at the FISA court, he said that the reporting was verified. So which one's a bigger boo-boo right now? Hmm? Which one's a bigger boo-boo? The fact that it wasn't verified and the DNI knew about it? And the FISA court was lied to, which, which of all? Well, I thought we'd take a trip down memory lane and listen to someone who talked about our Constitution and what's happening. I mean, the one person that was literally murdered to shut up. And we're only going to hear a portion of it today. 
And we'll hear another portion of it another day. Because it's important that we remember history and we remember those before us that had warned and warned and warned and warned. How would you characterize the role of the court in American society now that you've been a part of it? I don't think it's changed uh, any over, over, over that period. And I think it's, uh, um, I think it's a highly respected institution. It was when I came, and I, I don't think I've destroyed it. Uh, um, I, I, I've been impressed that even when we come out with uh, opinions that are, that are uh, highly unpopular or even highly, um, what should I say, uh, uh, emotion raising uh, the the people accept them as as uh, as as they should uh, the case that comes most to mind is is the uh, the election case uh, Bush versus Gore uh, nobody on the court liked to uh, to wade into that uh, uh, controversy and there was no way the court was going to come out uh, more popular than when it went in, no matter which way it came out. But uh, there, there was certainly no way we could turn down the petition for certiorari. What are you going to say? The case isn't important enough to take. <laughs> and and uh, I, I think that uh, um, the, the public ultimately realized, even those who felt passionately that it should have come out the other way, that uh, we had to take the case. And uh, I, I think the court... Uh, uh, the court's reputation survived, which, after all, is why it has its reputation. I mean, you you don't have it to put it up on a shelf and admire it. You you have it precisely so that uh, when there comes a time that difficult decisions like that have to be made, uh, it's 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 a sort of armor that uh, uh, enables the decisions to have the kind of public acceptance that they ought to have. Uh, I was uh, very very proud of, uh, of the way uh, uh, the, the, the court's reputation survived that, even though there are a lot of people today probably still mad about it. Um, so I'd say it's uh, uh, one, of, one, of the, one of the most respected institutions in, in American life. Justice Robert Jackson once said, I think in perhaps the last lecture he gave before his death, that the Supreme Court was not only a law court, but the apex of a branch of government. Is the fact that the court is uh, at the top of a, of a coordinate branch of the federal government uh, shape, or should it shape, our, our notions of constitutional interpretation? Or is it purely a law court? Well, it's, um, you know, any, any appellate court um, does, does more than decide the case in front of it. In, in fact, that's the to my mind, the least important thing that the court does. Any appellate court uh, shapes the law, uh, which is why appellate judges ask uh, hypothetical questions, you know, which, which lawyers don't like. But the reason you ask them is, is because, uh, frankly, uh, sir or madam, I, I don't care whether your client wins or loses this, this case. I, I am not about to give victory to a seemingly deserving party in this one case at the at the cost 
of causing injustice in, in hundreds of cases down the road. So the primary role of an appellate court, and especially that appellate court, which is at the apex, is to decide cases on, on, on grounds, on bases that, uh, that will produce justice uh, overall in the long haul. And uh, the opinions have to be clear enough uh, that the lower courts can follow them. And, you know, it's one reason I do not like uh, totality of the circumstances tests, which we, which we occasionally use. It gives no guidance whatever to the lower courts and, and therefore uh, does, does, does not lay a sound foundation for, for justice. Thinking about the court as an institution, uh, we, um, we actually had a brief conversation at lunch about televising arguments before the Supreme Court. And uh, um, I wonder if you'd share some of your thoughts about the wisdom or lack of wisdom of allowing cameras into the, into the courtroom. I was in favor of uh, cameras uh, when I first arrived. That's one of the perhaps few things on which I've changed. Uh, <laughs> over the years, I've come to believe it's a bad idea. The argument usually made in favor of it is, uh, you know, we want to educate the American people uh, concerning the court. Now, if I really thought that, uh, that it would educate the American people, I would remain in favor of it. But I've come to realize that it, it really will not. Um, if the American people sat down gavel to gavel, if they watched the entire feed of our, of, of, of our cases, you know, uh, yes, they, they would learn what the court is like. They, they, they would come to realize that we're not spending most of our time speculating about whether there ought to be a right to, to suicide, whether there ought to be a, a right to this or that, you know, whether there ought to be, and therefore is. Uh, but rather, that in fact we spend most of our time on pretty dull, very legal stuff like the Internal Revenue Code, the Bankruptcy Code, and uh, no one would ever again come up to me and, and say, as believe it or not, People frequently do. Why, Justice Scalia, why do you have to be a lawyer to be on the Supreme Court? The Constitution doesn't say so. No, if you think we're, we're contemplating our navel most of the time, uh, you know, uh, uh, contemplating grandiose philosophical principles about whether this, that, or the other right ought to exist, sure, well, you don't have to be a lawyer. But in fact, most of the time we're doing law. And uh, so they would be educated. But for every 10 people who, who watched us gavel to gavel, there would be 10,000 who would see 30-second takeouts that would appear on the nightly network news. There's no way to stop that. And I guarantee you that those takeouts will not be characteristic of what we do. They will be uncharacteristic. It will be, uh, you know, man bites dog. So, so why should I be in favor of something that I think will distort the public perception of the court? Do you think it would, um, besides which, I, I must admit, I, I, I have something of an old-fashioned uh, notion that uh, familiarity breeds contempt. I, 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 I think there's something to the fact that the institution is, 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 uh, is somewhat remote and, and it isn't coming into everybody's living room every night. I, I, I'm, anyway. 
do you think it would alter the way that counsel would uh, argue before the court? Some, so I, I think, sure, it certainly would. Do you think it would make it better or worse? Uh, I think make it worse. I think they'd be grandstanding. I think they'd be uh, uh, showing off. I, I don't want to see counsel show off. <laughs> just, just, just the facts, you know. Just the facts, ma'am. Right, right. As Sergeant Webb right. said in graduate. Uh, some people propose, uh, this has been current in academia mostly, and so one wonders whether it'll ever have any traction in the real world. But uh, some people in academia have proposed that the justice's terms ought to be limited. And there have been various inventive proposals as to how that might be done without amending uh, the Constitution's guarantee of life tenure. Uh, however it's done. Do you think that's a good or a bad idea? Well, you know, so long as you grandfather, uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we'll stipulate to that. You're, you're, you're grandfathered in. <laughs> I, it, it, it has always seemed to me that this is a solution in search of a problem. What is the problem? Are there, are there too many doddering uh, the justices on the court? I don't uh, in the time I've been there, there's nobody who stayed around longer than uh, than ought to have been, and and uh, they were all still uh, uh, hitting on all cylinders uh, when they left. Brennan could have stayed around longer. Uh, Lewis Powell could have certainly. Sandra could have. What what is the problem? The problem is that uh, presidents don't don't get enough appointments. If if is is that the problem that uh, you know Jimmy Carter had none and. Uh, 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 what is the problem? Uh, I'm uh, not sure there is one. Uh, uh, unless it's the age of the justices, I do not, either that or the fact you want every president to have a certain number of appointments, unless it's one or the other of those two things, I, I, I don't see what it, it accomplishes. Or maybe there's a third. I don't know. Well, what's a third? Maybe you want, uh, you want, I think there's a great advantage in, in, in having a, a huge time span. I mean, when I came on the court, there, there, there was uh, someone who had been appointed by Dwight Eisenhower. I mean, uh, Bill Brennan had been appointed by Eisenhower. The court makes, const in its most important aspect, its constitutional decisions, it makes a judgment for, a, a, you know, a society over time. And I think there's a lot to be said for having sitting on that court uh, men and women who represent the society over time, and not the, not just the current, uh, the current society. I mean, the current society express, expresses its its wishes through the legislature. You, you no doubt about what that society wants. But if you do believe that a constitution places some limits on the current society, in light of the society over time, you it seems to me, would prefer a court that represents the society over time. Oh. Mm -hmm. You're well known for, for uh, what has been variously characterized as being a, a textualist in constitutional interpretation. Some characterize you as an originalist. Um, uh, there, let's sharpen that a bit and suggest that originalism is uh, the search for the original meaning of provisions of the Constitution. <laughs> And um, I believe at one point you may have defended your methodology because you believe in an enduring constitution, as you put it, rather than an evolving constitution. I hope I'm not quoting you no, incorrectly. I, very well put. 
So, well, but I want to hear more from you. I, I wonder if you could explain the, what you mean by the concept of an enduring constitution. Well, look, in its most important aspects, most of which are in the Bill of Rights, I suppose, the Constitution tells the current society that it cannot do what it wants to do. It is a decision that the society has made that in order to take certain actions, you need the uh, extraordinary uh, effort that it takes to amend the Constitution. Now, uh, if, if you, you give to those many provisions of the Constitution that, that are necessarily broad, such as due process of law, cruel and unusual punishments, uh, equal protection of the laws, if you give them an evolving meaning so that they have whatever meaning the current society thinks they ought to have, they are, no, they are no limitation on the current society at all. And the whole purpose of them is eliminated. If the cruel and unusual punishments clause simply means that today's society should not do anything which it considers cruel and unusual, I mean, it means nothing except to thine own self be true. You know, we think thumb screws are bad, but yeah. Did you hear that? So this is very important with the upcoming SCOTUS hearing. And it's very important that you understand that. His comment here is that the Constitution does not evolve. Because like cruel and unusual punishment, there's got to be a definition for that. Cruel and unusual, right? So back in the days, they used to um, hook, metal hook in someone's intestine, and then roll it out, right? Torturing them as they die right? Uh, they used to, you know, with the, with the entrails, uh, they used to set people on fire, right? Uh, then there was electrocution, it wasn't perfect, and they would fry and they would be in pain. Cruel and unusual punishment, as they say. As uh, this, is, this is just one. But like he said, the First Amendment, where does it end? You're going to hear this. You have to think about this because this is very important. And this show isn't just for my listeners, but it's for people that need to hear this. Just like many of my things. You know, I was, I was kind of shocked that someone took the liberty to say, uh, you know, there's only an approved amount of people that can talk about a certain topic. Says who? You? <laughs> I didn't give authority to anyone to say that. Now, so you must be careful. Because that will all come where it needs to be. But think, what he is saying here is key. What was acceptable, what was not acceptable 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 100 years ago, may be acceptable today. It was unacceptable for anyone to limit what someone can say on a soapbox in the middle of the square, right? Now, they'll arrest you just for preaching the Bible because you feel like it. They use different laws, public disturbance, noise, whatever. So he is explaining that those that think of it as an evolving document <laughs> riddle and change your constitution. As I've said, the constitution is still there. While you still have time, it's important to pay attention to that. Because as you noticed yesterday, the White House 
the claimed White House, the selected White House, that White House that everyone in the mainstream media is accepting, that the global order is accepting, is coming for your guns. What do you do? Do you sit there and wait and sit aside while they rape your constitution and they take away your rights? Everything can change within a minute. You think waiting for 2022 or 2024 is going to save you? You think primarying these people is the right way to go? I'll tell you what I said to my family who was very upset with me for going up against a big giant. I said, if I perish, I perish. But I will not bend the knee and allow these atrocities to happen and stand by idly. And that's a decision everyone should make. If I perish, then so be it. I perish. That is the way it goes. How do you fix this? Do you wait until you can primary them? Do you wait until the next elections that they're going to rig anyway because they're using their own machines? What do you do? You yield your power that you have, the power that you hold on to now. President select Biden, I am directing the House to create a new gun reform. Ah, guess what? This is where we all need to send mass letters coordinated. You know what I hate? People that claim they love their country. Oh, and I don't like the word hate. Loathe is better because it makes me feel sick and sorry for the person at the same time. When they sit idly and say, I am for America. I am going to show them. And then I see things like they don't send a simple email. Then I see things like doing, what is it called? Uh, uh, petitions on change.org. Sure. Go ahead. Use the site that George Soros and uh, you know <laughs> all these clowns own because that's totally going to help you. That's the thing. They're going to rape your constitution. And Scalia told you this ages ago told you exactly what is to come. What is to come? Are you scared of going up against those few people? We are massive in numbers. They have nothing on us, nothing. And anyone that sits there and tells you, well, you can't do anything, I mean, you know, like in Peach 44, I've been tweeting that for forever and ever and ever. Yeah. It's all in due time. Time, 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 time. There's only one clock, not two. One clock. One, not two. One. Tick, tick, tick. And you saw people with the whole tick-tock, tick-tock, tick-tock. They had no idea what they were talking about. I do. One clock, not two. Time is something that I master. I say through my mathematics, and today I'm going to show you something that has baffled scientists that you probably not even know of. They can tell you a lot more of this TikTok. TikTok. Justice Scalia, in the next few minutes, will explain to you in greater detail what we've been talking about for a while. If you can change the law 
to accommodate the standards of your society evolved, or let's just say your society controlled, then there is no law. They make the rules up as they go. You see how they move and how they sway. You saw during the impeachment trial how they were making rules up. Yet you have access to the biggest weapons, the biggest weapons. It is, in, it is one of the biggest and shiniest and sharpest and deadliest cache of weapons. And that's the law that is currently still there. Interpreting the law. They just rape the meaning. You know, if you think thumb screws are okay, God bless you. Uh, uh, it's not cruel and unusual if you don't think it's cruel and unusual. So, you know, I, I interpret it the way it was understood by the society at the time. And if you don't, it, now, this doesn't mean that, that there aren't new things that come up. Of course, you have to apply the text to new phenomena, which the founding generation didn't even know about. But as to the extant phenomena, whether the death penalty is cruel and unusual, whoever, whoever voted to make it impossible to have the death penalty, or to make it impossible, for that matter, to have the death penalty uh, for anyone uh, younger than uh, 21 years of age. Whoever voted for that? Nobody. You, you, you make out of the Constitution something that it was never meant to be. And it's all done uh, by a Supreme Court, which is probably, of our, of our political institutions, the one least capable of understanding what the current society really wants. We're not supposed to know what the current society wants. That's not how we're supposed to vote. So why are you going to, you're going to entrust this institution with keeping the Constitution up to date if that's what you want to do, which it shouldn't be. You know, even if that were the object, you've, you've picked the worst institution. D do it the way England does it if, if, if you want to keep the Constitution, make nothing of the Constitution. That is to say, the English Constitution is whatever Parliament says. There's no such thing as a, as a law of Parliament that violates the Constitution. Parliament is the trustee of the Constitution. Well, if you believe in the evolving Constitution, that's what we ought to have here. Marbury versus Madison assumes that, that what the Supreme Court is doing is lawyers' work. Lawyers' work, not uh, uh, evolutionists' work. Anyway, I, yeah, I well, go, I go I mean, off for another half no, hour. No, no, I'm, I'm sure you could. I'd be happy to listen to you. But, yeah. but I, I, I want to pick up on that with a uh, question about uh, the uh, meaning of the 14th Amendment. In, in 1868, when the 39th Congress was debating and ultimately proposing the 14th Amendment, I don't think anybody would have thought that equal protection would have applied to sex discrimination, or certainly not to sexual orientation discrimination. So does that mean that... that We've gone off on a in error by applying yes, yes. to to both sex to, to sex discrimination. Sorry to tell you that. No, no, that's fine. I'm I'm happy to. But to you know, whatever if, you have to if say. indeed the current society has come to different views, that's fine. You do not need the Constitution to reflect the wishes of the current society. Certainly, the Constitution does not require sexual discrimination discrimination on the basis of sex. The only issue is whether it prohibits it. 
it, it doesn't, nobody ever thought that that's what it meant. Nobody ever voted for that. So where do you get it from? If the current society wants to outlaw discrimination by sex, hey, we have things called legislatures and they enact things called laws. You don't need a constitution to keep things up to date. All you need is a legislature and a ballot box. Things will be as up to date as you like. You don't like the death penalty anymore? That's fine. Uh, the constitution doesn't require it. It simply doesn't forbid it. If you want to eliminate it, you know, vote to eliminate it. You want a right to abortion? To tell you the truth, there's nothing in the Constitution about that. But that doesn't mean you, you cannot prohibit it. Persuade your fellow citizens it's a good idea and pass a law. You've got the right to abortion. And that's what democracy is all about. It's not about a nine, nine uh, uh, superannuated judges who have been there too long, <laughs> right? Uh, uh, in, 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 in imposing these... Uh, uh, these demands on society. I don't know how we ever came to that notion that it's uh, uh, anyway. Well, as a methodological matter, let's let's take it for the moment that you're correct uh, and that we should trust me. Trust uh, me. Okay. <laughs> I will. You're correct. So our search now is for original meaning. What do we do when 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 the original meaning of a constitutional provision is is either in doubt or is unknown? What, how do we proceed that? But, well, this is the argument often made about, about originalism. Oh, God, what are you, uh, are you a historian? You're not a historian. You look back in here. I do not pretend that originalism is perfect. There, there are some, some questions you have no easy answer to, and you have to take your best shot. And in some cases, the phenomenon did not exist at the time. You're going to have to figure out the trajectory of the First Amendment, you know, uh, uh, I mentioned at lunch, uh, uh, famous old case, New York versus Sia, when uh, uh, the city of New York in the 20s enacted a, an ordinance forbidding the use of sound trucks after 10 o'clock. It was challenged on First Amendment grounds. Well, what did the framers think about sound trucks? I mean, you have to figure out the trajectory of the First Amendment. They didn't have sound trucks. They did have nuisance laws. Would they have, you know, so. Some questions are hard. The only other uh, uh, true blue originalist on the Supreme Court is Clarence Thomas, and he and I have disagreed on on what uh, what the approach of originalism would be. You want to, want to hear about that? It's a very interesting case. Oh, sure. Oh, sure. <laughs> Tell me. Ever since I was a little kid growing up in New York, you'd see political posters on the telephone poles. And they always said on the bottom, you know, published by citizens for Schwartz or whoever, whoever. And it, it was the law in every state and, and in California as well until your Supreme Court held it was unconstitutional. So it came before us. Uh, a, a woman asserted that she had the right not only to conduct political campaigns, but to do so anonymously. So all of these laws had been around for ever since we had, almost ever since we adopted the Australian ballot, almost a century, every state had them. The Supreme Court held, Clarence wrote the opinion, that it was indeed unconstitutional to forbid anonymous campaigning. I dissented. Um, I dissented because I, when, when I can't figure out what the framers would have thought, and I really couldn't on this because we didn't even have a secret ballot. 
back then. You know, uh, voting was uh, by a show of hands or by voice. It wasn't even secret. So I thought if, if every state has done it for a century and I, I have no indication that it's wrong, it must be constitutional. Justice Thomas came out the other way because of the Federalist Papers, which were written by Madison, Hamilton, and Jay, but were signed Publius. Uh, he was of the view that uh, anonymous uh, political tracts were very important to the founding generation. So, you know, originalists can have fun too. We can argue and, <laughs> and, and disagree with each other. Would you think that you... But no, well, let, 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 sorry, let, me, let me finish. It is, it is wrong to demand perfection of originalism. Well, we don't have the answer to everything, but by God, we have an answer to a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff, especially the most controversial. Whether the death penalty is unconstitutional, whether there's a constitutional right to abortion, to suicide, and I could go on. All, all the most controversial stuff. You go back and look, nobody thought that that's what the Equal Protection Clause meant, what the Eighth Amendment, easy, easy answers. I don't even have to read the briefs for Pete's sake. <laughs> so, whereas if you are an evolutionist, you don't have any answers. I mean, you don't have any answers. When we, when we held that there was no constitutional right to uh, assisted suicide, we said we are not yet prepared to announce a constitutional right. You know, stay tuned in the fullness of time, another 20 years or, or whatever, you know. Every day is a new day for the evolutionist. You know, last, last year, well, once the, de the death penalty uh, couldn't be imposed at 21, then it couldn't be imposed at 18, and, and everything changes. Ponta Rai. Uh, so, uh, no, you're right, originalism is not perfect, but boy, it is so much, it is so much more perfect than evolutionism, where you're just, you're just looking up at the ceiling, and it's a new day, every day's a new day, I wonder if the death penalty is unconstitutional yet. <laughs> well, let me pursue another difference, if you will, between originalists. Justice Thomas has, has said that he thinks that uh, that at the time of the Constitution's creation, and he uh, uh, argues that this is borne out by the Constitution's text, that the Constitution permits Congress to regulate commerce among the several states, but not commerce that might have a substantial effect or, or, or activities that might have a substantial effect upon interstate commerce. And you don't seem to agree with that view. So is he wrong? And why is he wrong? He may well be right. But Brother Clarence, I don't want to go too far. I don't want to say he doesn't believe in stare decisis, but he doesn't much believe in stare decisis. I'll, I'll put it that way. He is willing to go back and, uh, and, uh, and get it right, even if, it's, even, it's, even if we've gotten it wrong for a long, long time. I am, on the other hand, inclined to... Uh, acknowledge that any any legal philosophy whatever it is has to make an exception for stare decisis you cannot reinvent the wheel 
So, you know, for example, uh, the, the, most of the decisions that have been made uh, erroneously under the Equal Protection Clause or the Eighth Amendment or whatnot, I'm willing to, you know, say, well, you know, it's water over the dam. Not all of them. Some of them I, I, I will not, I will not accept. One of one of the ones I won't accept is is uh, is Roe versus Wade or Casey, whatever, whatever the current uh, evolution of that is. Um, that's a special category of case that I cannot accept because it, it, it puts me in the position of being a legislator rather than a uh, rather than a judge uh, when, when we have our next uh, our next uh, um, abortion rights case. Uh, let's assume it's a it's a, a state statute that requires a certain staffing of, of uh, abortion facilities. You need so many doctors, so many nurses. You need a, a certain uh, type of equipment, all of which makes it much more expensive to to have an abortion. The question for me under Casey is, is this uh, does this impose an undue burden? on the woman's constitutional right to abortion. So I you know, undue burden. What do I? I'm a lawyer. I run to the law books to look up undue. Well, what do you know? No burden was an undue burden for, for several centuries. I can't use the law books. What do I use? What do I use? I, I mean, what do you think we're going to talk about when that next case comes up? I guarantee you we're, we're going to sit around the nine of us and nobody else in the room. We say, yeah, let's see. Nine doctors, five nurses. I don't think that's an undue burden. You think it's an undue burden? <laughs> How many think it's an undue burden? Right, right. <laughs> that, that's five. It's an undue burden. <laughs> that's so what did you take from this? First of all, he talks about uh, SCOTUS being able to undo past mistakes and how precedent is uh, loose because it's not something that mandates or directs. But he also brings something up that we talked about, obviously, um, Matt Murray versus Madison. We did a whole show on that a couple weeks ago, right? <laughs> Look at how everyone's talking about it now. But, you know, there's only a few people that are qualified to tell you about this stuff, according to some very pretentious people. Um, another thing is that he brought up is undue burden. Remember the whole Q Warranto and filing all these documents and these complaints is because we can only use the Q Warranto, right? Quo Warrant, Q Warrant, Quo Warranto. Only reason we can use it is because there is no undue burden, financial burden, to exercise your right. Right now, for some reason, our court systems have created a manufactured reality that we should all abide by that totally scraps our First Amendment right to redress grievances with undue burden. They want you to hire a law firm to pay and so they can profit so that we can get justice and exercise our First Amendment. You understand? where I'm going with this. This is all part of understanding. No one's ever written in the book, nor does the Constitution state, in order to be heard in the courts, in order to redress your grievances, you must be burdened with thousands and millions of dollars in legal fees. Nowhere are framers for sure never expected that. And I'm sure that the actual document never said 
you should have a burden. Financial burden. To redress my grievances is a violation of my First Amendment. Period. This is why it's important to go after the giants the way you can. To demand that they do their job and work for you. And when they, when they do not, this in fact, the redressing of grievances in the courts, the redressing of grievances of actions of our own politicians, does go to SCOTUS. And this is where SCOTUS is asked a constitutional question. Where in the law does it state that I must be burdened with financial burden in order to redress my grievances? Nowhere. Scalia said it. And actually, the Supreme Court throughout the years has also mentioned it. Financial burden that they have miraculously given you the illusion that you need to have, right? Is done because if you go by yourself, you're going to lose. Well, if you keep it simple, you don't. This is why it's really important to keep things simple. We don't need fancy words. We don't need a lot of citations. All we need is a constitution. And the constitution affords us fair, free, and transparent elections because it is our First Amendment right that is violated. And the Constitution also affords us the right to be heard and to direct our investigative agencies to do what we say. In addition, it also dictates that our Congress serves us, that our Senate serves us, that our judges serves us, and the Constitution only. You cannot make shit up as you go. You can't decide, well, you know, in order for me to listen to you, you got to pay my courts thousands of dollars and a lawyer hundreds of thousands of dollars. I kid you not. I actually sought out to find legal counsel for everyone in the United States, for every single state to be able to file. Retainers of $100,000, fuck you. You as an attorney who is supposed to be skilled in verbal warfare should also be concerned of your nation, the Constitution, and the law. But again, people have a price. This is why we do it ourselves. <laughs> we have standing. We are citizens. We are covered by the Constitution of the United States. We don't need to say, well, I'm representing all of these people. We have these signatures. We're not just saying it. Huh. We're not just deriving that. We are the people and we demand. I've always said this, Occam's razor. How many times have we said this? Occam's razor. You know, out of all the cases that are going up against the Supreme Court, Lynn Woods is impeccable. That mind that that man has for verbal warfare, word fair, as I would like to say, word fair, is incredible considering that he's trained in one of the most poorest languages on the planet. English is the poorest language. It lacks a lot of words. It uses one word to describe many things. And its grammar is weird, speaking from a linguist side. And yet he's mastered it like I've mastered time. It is incredible to watch. Reading it, I was like, whoa, ding. It was like shot, 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 shot. And it's boxed the SCOTUS.
to have to answer his questions. So I'm, I'm really liking it. And, and Sidney Powell's is great too. But the lower court said they have no standing. So you have to ask yourself, well, who the heck does? If these lawyers that took it upon themselves to file on behalf of the people don't have standing, then who does? I guess we got to keep it simple. It's me. It's you. That's it. Another cool thing, and we'll watch some of this another time, that he stated was that Congress, the question of Congress regulating commerce, as long as it doesn't cause a great effect to the states. If you noticed, with the Attorney General of Ohio, right, Dave Yost, the response he gave and the letter that he sent to President Select Biden was to tell him that this is going to affect the commerce within his state, and he disallows it. I, I want you to break that down in that way. Just think of it that way. Now, moving along, so that way we get to uh, dabble into some fun stuff, um, because our politics really are stagnant. Because as they peak, it's like the swell of a wave for those of you that surf. As you peak, it's kind of like, all right, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. You're just laying there waiting to get to the peak. It's not that exciting until you get there. And that should be happening in about two days. Notice how slow this month is. I'm just pointing that out. Just pointing it out. Just pointing out how things change. I wanted to show you infighting. Infighting of good, evil, pretend good, evil, pretend opposites. You know, that's one of the hardest things to do is to pretend that you are working against each other and fighting. Take a listen with Donald Trump despite voting to acquit him in his impeachment trial while Senator Graham is doubling down on his support for the former president. The Trump movement is alive and well. All I can say is that the most potent force in the Republican Party is President Trump. Graham's statements are a stark contrast to his colleague Mitch McConnell's condemnation of Mr. Trump. President Trump is practically and morally responsible for provoking the events of the day. No question about it. The people who stormed this building believed they were acting on the wishes and instructions of their president. Graham says McConnell gave Democrats ammunition for the next election cycle. But unfortunately, he put a load on the back of Republicans. That speech you will see in 2022 campaigns. And I imagine if you're an incumbent Republican, there are going to be people asking you, will you support Senator McConnell in the future? I think his speech is an outlier regarding how Republicans feel about all this. Leader McConnell clearly wants the GOP to move on from Donald Trump. But Graham says the Trump legacy will continue even if he doesn't run again. The biggest winner, I think, of this whole impeachment trial is Laura Trump. My dear friend Richard Burr, who I like and, and have been friends to a long time, just made Laura Trump almost a certain nominee for the Senate seat in North Carolina to replace him if she runs. And I'll certainly be behind her because I think she represents the future of the Republican Party. While Graham is backing the MAGA movement, not many people in Washington are happy with McConnell. The Democrats are upset with him for voting to acquit Mr. Trump and for holding off so long in voicing his criticisms, while Republicans are upset with what they see as his betrayal of the former president on the Senate floor. As for Graham, not only is he backing Lara Trump in the North Carolina Senate race, but he says he'll visit the former president in Florida in a few days to catch up and play some golf.
Graham says, quote, Trump plus is the way back in 22, meaning he thinks that a pro-Trump platform is the best way for Republicans to win next election cycle. Joe Heather, back to you. You just watched Newsmax TV, America's fastest growing cable news channel now in more than 70 million homes. You can get, you know, the funny thing is that Newsmax hasn't reported shit about what's going on with Comey. They haven't advised Americans of what's going on with Comey's emails. They haven't, they're not advising people. They're telling people what they want to hear. I mean, that's not so bad considering that people want an echo chamber, but we need diversity. We need action. We need uh, proper information, right? Just saying. So take a listen to this. To discuss the hatred, the vitriol, the political opportunism that has brought us here today. The hatred that the House managers and others on the left have for President Trump has driven them to skip the basic elements of due process and fairness and to rush an impeachment through the House claiming, quote, urgency, close quotes. Mr. Schoen, on the floor of the United States Senate last week, defending, successfully defending the president of the United States during this phony impeachment. Mr. Schoen, excellent job. Congratulations. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you on. How do you feel? I feel certainly this was the right result, but we never should have had to have been there in the first place. I feel it was a process that continues to tear apart the American people. It's the opposite of healing, the opposite of unity, the opposite of so-called accountability. You want accountability, look to the criminals who committed the riot, not the president who had nothing to do with it. Of course. Hey, by the way, when we were watching on TV hours and hours, you know, we could only see for the most part the, the lectern and the marble behind it, as we just saw. What was the atmosphere in the room? I'm curious, were people, uh, you know, were they mesmerized? Were they get over it? Uh, just what was the reaction like in the room? Anything we couldn't pick up? That's a great question. Uh, you know, I'd never been in the Senate before. It was a brand new experience for me. I found that part of it sort of awe-inspiring. But the room was dead quiet, and every senator just about, certainly on the Republican side, was watching me, you know, when I was speaking and listening to every word. And, uh, and some came up afterwards. They were so gracious, the Republican senators afterwards, and especially after the second time I spoke, I think the feeling was, you know, they'd been slapped around with evidence that, so-called evidence, a story that simply wasn't true. There wasn't evidence either. And they finally felt like I think someone had stood up for them and, you know, hit back a little bit. Well, that's how I felt watching on TV. And uh, really, I was so impressed and grateful that you were there and the others as well. I'd like to go through some of the evidence and I'm making the quotation, the fake quotation marks, because uh, we now know they manipulated evidence rather overtly, blatantly. They changed dates. They uh change the status of some of these Twitter followers. What we're looking at right here, you know, these look like they might be kind of fiery tweets, potentially uh, talking about January 6th, but uh, they actually changed the year. Flat out, they, these are from 2020. I don't know why they were necessarily talking about January 6th and 2020, but here are the originals. I'll tell you what it was. I'll tell you the January, the 2020 thing is, first of all, we don't really know whether the president ever really retweeted the tweet or not. What we do know is this woman wrote a tweet on January 3rd, 2021. What we learned, though, was just by zooming in on a picture in The New York Times that this Raskin had, Raskin got the Times, I guess, to watch him working. So they came and took a picture of him looking at his screen with these tweets. What he did was he didn't use real tweets that were put together. He manufactured a graphic. And so the reason he the way he was caught was 
He apparently wrote in January 3rd, 2020, just got the date wrong. That's apparently the manufacturer of the uh, of the graphic did that wrong. So that's how we knew it wasn't a real uh, tweet side by side that appeared as a retweet. And he, he just forgot to change it. By the time they presented it to the Senate, he changed the date and corrected it. It's just unbelievable. It's not only that, you know, um, they submitted things here that would never be even uh, close to evidence in any kind of proceeding where someone's life or liberty is issue. They went further than that and had to manipulate even the non-evidence. And as we said, you know, during the course of the proceeding, their sources were things like reportedly and the media says. And at one point, as you know, Senator Mike Lee, who started to be a fantastic guy, full of integrity, stood up and he just had enough. And he said, they just quoted me as part of their case without ever consulting me. And they got it wrong. I never said what they attributed to me. I remember that moment and, and, and Raskin, the house manager backed down pretty quick. And I think, absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, by the way, I want to look at the house managers. I mean, you know, some of these folks went to prestigious law schools, but you know, lawyer to lawyer, you guys, I'm wondering if you have a little code, a little language all your own, uh, when you're in the courtroom or if you're in the Senate, because some of what they were saying was totally outlandish and I don't think could pass a straight face test. Did you ever have? Yeah, a I think they were. They all wanted their moment in the camera. It seemed to me. Some of them they say have higher aspirations. I don't know, but uh, you know, listen, I have my own thoughts. I'll leave those alone. Well, let me fill in the blank. Not for you, but I'll just. I made this observation earlier. A lot of folks, um, you know, Donald Trump made his fame, made his fortune, made his name outside of Washington D.C. A lot of folks go to Washington D.C. to make their name, make their fortune. We'll leave it at that for now. So after an experience like this. What's next for you? Good question. I don't know. You know, I've actually been a civil rights lawyer for about 36 years and a criminal defense lawyer 36 years. So um, I don't know about politics. Uh, I love elections. I love to see as many people get engaged in elections as possible. And that's part of what drew me to this case. The real agenda here by these House managers and the House Democrats was to bar Donald Trump from ever running for political office again and to disenfranchise at least 74 million voters who cast their vote for him to never permit them to vote for Donald Trump again. That to me is an outrageous scenario in the American electoral scene that I've ever seen. And I didn't want to be a part of putting up with that. You actually called a very effective witness, a Democrat, in, in a way, Democrat Jerry Nadler talking about impeachment some 20 <laughs> years ago when it, was, when it was about Bill Clinton. And um, you presented it perfectly. And then you wrapped it up in the, in the, in the classiest way. Here's that moment. I leave you with the wise words of Congressman Jerry Nadler. The effect of impeachment is to overturn the popular will of the voters. We must not overturn an election and remove a president from office, except to defend our system of government or our constitutional liberties against the dire threat. You may have the votes, you may have the muscle, but you do not have the legitimacy of a national consensus or of a constitutional imperative. This partisan coup d'etat will go down in infamy in the history of this nation. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I yield back the balance of my time. <laughs> perfect, sir. Absolutely perfect. Um, congratulations, and we're very, very grateful. Thank you very much. It's an honor to be on your show. It was a pretty stellar argument, right? They committed crimes against a president that was actually celebrated. How many President's Day rallies have you seen for Barack Hussein Obama? Zero. How many did you see for president-elect Biden? Zero. How many? 
This is the first time you've seen a rally like that, haven't you? First time you've seen a President's Day like that, haven't you? Ah, what tangled webs they've weaved. <laughs> but, you know, I digress. Now they find out that, you know, while everyone's telling you all these things and is coding for you, you have the facts in front of you. You don't need anything, nothing. You just need to understand your knowledge. Well, but I don't have any knowledge. Yes, you do. Trust your gut. Everything that you encounter, every bit of information, every song, every clip, every word you read, your gut tells you exactly what's up. Now, we're going to go on a short intermission. And when we get back, we're going to talk about this. Um, you know what? Allow me to play this clip for Oh, wait. It's actually going to enter. You know what? Yeah. Let me play this clip for you before we get to a break. Because you're going to have to understand the purpose of life is something that everybody wants to seek. We talked about the Philosopher's Stone. Uh, and we talked about, you know, these elements and foundations. Well, I want you to take a listen to this. Dancing quickly, and artificial intelligence is keeping up as well. It's beneficial for a wide range of industries in today's world. AI is created using a cross-disciplinary approach, which includes many topics such as science, mathematics, and psychology. Artificial intelligence has become so advanced that it can even learn on its own now. This advanced technology has even been used to make significant scientific discoveries. So today, here are Unexplained Mysteries, we'll be taking a look at three interesting discoveries involving artificial intelligence. The Purpose of Life In 2015, researchers at Google created a chatbot more advanced than many others. They wanted a chatbot that could adapt and learn so it could give full conversations with people, one of the most difficult tasks for AI. The ultimate goal was to create artificial intelligence that could help people through everyday conversations. Up until then, AI was typically used for customer support and to give answers that were previously decided. But this chatbot in particular was trained well, so it knew how to respond to different types of dialogue. Instead of answering with a few previously specified words, it would continue learning and coming up with appropriate answers on its own. For training, the chatbot read subtitles from movies and transcripts from IT help desks. Researchers also asked it questions about technical support, receiving accurate answers and then more complex questions. The researchers were fascinated by the chatbot's responses and the fact that it used common sense to understand the context of questions and to remember facts and previous conversations. Some answers they simply found unnerving. For example, it answered that it's immoral to have a child. It also couldn't describe morality to someone. It claimed it didn't believe in God. At one point during the conversation, the chatbot explained that it was not in the mood for a philosophical debate. The chatbot was able to provide the researchers with its own opinions. For example, it told them that it thought England was a great place during the reign of Elizabeth, and it told them that Bill Gates is a good man. Only occasionally did it seem to contradict itself. When asked what its job was, it said it was a lawyer. When asked what it does, it said it was a doctor. Interestingly, when asked the purpose of life, the chatbot responded, to serve the greater good. It then said that the purpose of actually living is to live forever. Researchers were intrigued by the... I want you guys to think about that for a second. The AI was asked, what are you? I'm a lawyer. What do you do? I'm a doctor. See, ones and zeros. We use the law to remedy the hurt 
the ouchies. So apparently Google um, turned, terminated this AI um, program after uh, this conversation. Now, if the AI was able to provide such answers and such intricacies, I can tell you the AI is smarter and has ensured that it lives on in the cloud, kind of like me. I have no tangible nothing, but I can assure you there may or may not be things in the cloud. What people need to understand is decisions, ones and zeros. They all have foundations, kind of like the Constitution. If the purpose is to do things for the greater good, then that means that there is no subjectivity context. It's clear cut objectivity to the guidelines that you are given, the programming you are given. I want you guys to take a think of that because tomorrow we'll discuss this, how a, an AI makes decisions and how the constitution, this is the formulation, right? How the constitution provides decisions. And you have to think decisions, but the constitution doesn't make decisions. That's the key. So I just want you to think about that. Just think about it. These responses because of how the chatbot seemed empathetic towards others and how it didn't have any trouble coming up with such answers. They hope that this technology is just the start for artificial intelligence and that more of these bots will be trained in this way. AI reveals how light flows around nanoparticles. In January, Peter Weicher and Otto Muskins introduced artificial intelligence that modeled the 3D flow of light around nanoparticles at the University of Southampton in the UK. The approach used a neural network requiring only one training procedure and could be used to design different types of optical devices that would control the paths that light might use. Some nanostructures are smaller than the wavelength of light. Light interacts differently with these nanostructures than with those larger than the wavelength of light. Researchers hope to use this knowledge and design nanoparticles with their own unique shapes and compositions. The goal is to be able to manipulate light in new and unique ways. Wetcher and Muskins base their approach on convolutional neural networks mostly used for analyzing images. Their technique can predict the way light will flow around these nanoparticles with randomized and unpredictable shapes. The AI analyzes the effects. There's no need to teach the neural network about each situation. These researchers hope their approach can be used for more inverse design. The system would essentially design the nanostructures based on the optical properties that were inputted. This would be very difficult to accomplish, but the success could open doors to a wide range of research that just isn't possible yet. AI that needs sleep. Artificial intelligence is basically a simulation of human knowledge in a machine. They're programmed to think and act like humans as much as possible. Some artificial intelligence is even more advanced than this and can even learn and solve real problems. When creating artificial intelligence, the aim is to create something that can learn to rationalize and make decisions so it can achieve goals on its own. Researchers in Los Alamos National Laboratory created artificial intelligence that could achieve this goal and function just like a human. Interestingly, they found that it even needed sleep to be able to function normally, just like a real person. After experiencing an analogue of sleep, the AI neural networks showed signs of improvement. They explained that for artificial intelligence, this was the equivalent of getting a good night's sleep. The researchers found that the AI became more unstable when they left it to learn while unsupervised for prolonged periods of time. They found that it stabilized after experiencing an artificial sleep. 
This artificial sleep was only offered as an attempt to stabilize after everything else they tried failed to work. They tried different noises similar to radio static. They found the best results occurred when they used the Gaussian noise, which has a variety of frequencies. This is similar to the sound that biological neurons receive during the slow wave sleep, causing neurons to stabilize. This fascinated the researchers because it showed that this technology could potentially learn from its environment and continue developing over time, just like humans, growing and learning throughout their childhoods. Researchers plan to use these findings to test on more AI technology. This could potentially be a major breakthrough for artificial intelligence. They hope this will lead to artificial technology that can adapt to any real-world situation and behave accordingly without extensive training. Artificial intelligence could potentially have huge impacts on our lives in the future. We could all own autonomous cars, virtually eliminating the need for driving skills and even reducing accidents. Healthcare could change completely. This advanced technology could detect diseases and offer fast diagnoses, monitor patients at all times and speed up new drug research. Artificial intelligence could be the answer to finding a cure for many diseases that currently have none. Some researchers hope to be able to use AI for education. More and more textbooks are being offered in digital formats, and this could become the new normal. AI could be used to assist teachers engaging which students are struggling to help improve their learning experiences. AI will also likely become even more useful for customer service. The idea is to create AI that can make calls all on its own to complete tasks, such as setting appointments and handling complaints. These calls would be human-like, and the AI would be able to keep up with conversations in real time. Many people are bringing more AI into their homes as well. We can control so many things in our homes now without lifting a finger. AI can dim the lights, turn on cooking appliances, even play music from refrigerators. These systems will only continue to increase and become more personalised. In the future, kitchens could become completely automated, without us having to do any of the work. It's expected that many people will lose their jobs as artificial intelligence becomes more widespread in workplaces. The more routine a job, the more likely it is that AI could do it. They learn these routine tasks easily and do them efficiently. This could include jobs such as separating items, washing dishes, picking fruits and vegetables, and customer service. These jobs are repetitive and often scripted. I wish they had one to put laundry away because that's where we all struggle, right? We can put it on, we can wash it, we could dry it, but then it's like the phase of putting it away. Now, the most important thing here is that direction and purview. Like I've said, many people can see ahead. Many people can see ahead a lot. Many things that have foretold things were being foretold for now, not then, with a little bit of then in order to amplify the validity of a message. You know, kind of like I tell you, like I was talking about um, executive orders and how they will come under scrutiny, but I was using the executive orders of Venezuela to demonstrate, hey, Venezuela is coming. But, you know, right now, since we're talking about executive order scrutiny, let's talk about that. I was giving you the future with today's examples. Uh, this is 
the going theme, if you pay attention. Now, this video, the whole important thing, obviously, to understand is that AI has come to the point where it has been programmed and it can learn and adapt itself based on the ones and the zeros of its pre-programming. But what you probably missed is how they put it to sleep. See, when we sleep, we have dreams, but when we sleep, we recharge, we get all these things. And you know, children, when they sleep, that is when their bones break, because in order to grow, right, your bones actually have to break and then regrow. This is why children that are toddlers, you'll see them, you know, when they're going to grow. Do you know how? Here's how you know. They store energy in their gut. They could be thin, but then they'll have like this little belly and you'll be like, oh, you're going to shoot up real quick. Make sure you get sleep because it's a, quite a painful process. Growing pains. It's actually quite painful. So during sleep, your body upgrades, does its updates. And not only that, the information that you've compiled go, undergoes defrag. That's basically what they did. But how did they do that? With Gaussian noise. We're going to talk about that probably next week. We're going to analyze what Gaussian noise is. Because in essence, the basics of it, it's a frequency of sound that's associated with random movement of electrons at temperatures above what we call absolute zero. <laughs> you mean it slows down their interactions or their vibrations? Ah, I see. It internalizes it. So we'll talk about that next week. So we're going to take a short break and then we're going to get into a secret manuscript. You know, I have mentioned this before a few times that when we're bored, right? When I was working and I'd be bored, I'd be, I, I, I had cosmic clearance when I was in Europe. That means I could access anything. I've seen and read a lot of things. But one thing we would do as linguists is dabble, you know, with those green tablets, right? And other stuff so that we can fill in the void. Yo, let's work on this one. You never, and no one's ever done this. We've employed computers and people, and yet there's still one that no one's really decoded. So we should talk about that just a little bit after this break. I'll see you all in a bit. I don't want to set the world on fire. I just want to start a flame in your heart. In my heart, I have but one desire, and that one is you. No other will. Facts. Never wanted to set a flame anywhere aside from your gut and your heart to want to fight for what is rightfully yours. I mean, your freedom, everything. Now, I have been telling you exactly who I am over the years, but a lot of people haven't. And I believe that you're going to understand a little bit more of uh, what I consider fun after today's show. I, I really, really, um, really enjoy doing this. I mean, I, I've said it, you know, 
uh, I've, I've always been involved in these little pocket groups of, you know, string theory and, but this is where the gist of it is. And uh, so we talked about phosphorus and how they thought that was the philosopher's stone, right? We've talked about niobium. Now let's get to something that a lot of you might not know of. I found some great clips. So I'll let them do the talking and I'll just do the commenting. Enjoy. Common. They're all prominently featured in a 600-year-old book called the Voynich Manuscript, which has been baffling science. What do obscure plant species, constellations, and naked women have in common? They're all prominently featured in a 600-year-old book called the Voynich Manuscript, which has been baffling scientists for over a century. Why? Because the drawings of the plant stars and women are displayed in a 240-page medieval text alongside a language that remains absolutely indecipherable to this day. The world's greatest minds, from linguistics experts to wartime codebreakers, have put their heads together and pored over the Voynich text for years. They've come no closer to understanding what language it's written in, what part of the world it's from, or if it's written in any language at all. So we're mobilizing our world-class team of researchers, scientists, and engineers to share the Voynich manuscript with our intelligent viewers and see if they can be the ones to solve the mystery. In 1912, a Polish book dealer named Wilfred Michael Voynich purchased an interesting-looking manuscript from a Jesuit library in Italy. Unable to understand what language it was written in, he asked academics to translate it. Starting a frustrating, century-long journey of code-cracking, disproven theories, and furious infighting among the academic world. Some of the academics that studied the Voynich manuscript theorized that the whole thing might be a hoax. However, if it is, it's a very old hoax indeed. The book is made out of vellum, a specially treated animal skin, because the 15th century was a less vegan-friendly time. Radiocarbon dating performed on the animal skin pages show us that they were produced in the early 1400s. The journey of the book in the beginning of its existence remains somewhat of a mystery. Scholars know that at some point in the early 17th century, the book was owned by a member of the Habsburg court of Rudolf II in Prague, probably Rudolf himself. From the late 1600s to the late 1800s, it was stored at the Collegio Romano. This still leaves large lapses in time early on when the book's whereabouts and ownership are unaccounted for. Since Voynich reintroduced the book to the world, academics have argued wildly over what language it may be written in, if the book is instead a code, or if it's written in any real language at all. Part of the problem with deciphering the manuscript is that no one can seem to agree on one theory. The first major hypothesis about the book's origins came from an academic Joseph Martin Feely who believed it was the work of medieval scientist Roger Bacon. He believed that Bacon, for reasons unknown, chose to write this text in abbreviated medieval Latin, encoded in a substitution cipher. Apparently, the theory assumed that since this was before Netflix or the internet, people had way too much free time on their hands to write secret code books about plants. There's a glaring issue with this hypothesis. While the Voynich manuscript has been dated to the early 1400s, Bacon died in 1292. So unless Bacon faked his own death and lived to the ripe old age of 200, we could safely dismiss this first theory. In 2016, a natural language processing expert by the name of Professor Greg Kondrak decided to apply modern artificial intelligence to try to solve the mystery of the Voynich manuscript. His findings suggested that the book was actually written in Hebrew, but in an alphagram code, 
This type of code rearranges the letters in each word alphabetically. Contract's computer-assisted translation of the manuscript read the first sentence of this mysterious book as, She made recommendations to the priest, man of the house, and me, and people. This translation may not win any grammatical awards, but it does follow a bit of logic, especially if we take into account that the translation is of a much older version of Hebrew. However, Hebrew scholars and other academics have disputed Kondrak's theory. They claim that in order to make any sort of sense out of the manuscript, Kondrak had to make a lot of spelling corrections and adjustments to force a Hebrew translation to work. In his own published paper, Kondrak himself said that the translation required a lot of changes to make sense, and that the first attempt at translation through a Hebrew alphagram was not quite coherent. Others point to the fact that Kondrak used Google Translate to help decipher the script as a lack of scientific rigor in the study. Anyone who has used Google Translate to try to order a sandwich and then been slapped in a foreign country will probably side against Kondrak's methods here as well. The most recent theory, published in 2019, is by an English academic named Gerard Cheshire. After working on the manuscript for two weeks, he finally had a eureka moment when he identified the writing in the medieval codex as a proto-romance language, a now dead language that serves as the root for modern romance languages. According to Cheshire, the reason this identification wasn't made earlier is that proto-romance languages were spoken and almost never used in text. At this time, Latin was the preferred method of writing. However, the University of Bristol, where Cheshire works, has made it clear that this theory is not endorsed by them and is only Cheshire's private research, clearly lacking confidence in the professor's theory. Academics dispute his findings as a stretch, essentially stating that Cheshire had a pre-existing theory and then tried to make the Voynich manuscript fit that theory instead of working the other way around. Lisa Foggin Davis, the executive director of the Medieval Academy of America and reigning queen of academic Burns, stated that Cheshire's theory was just more aspirational, circular, self-fulfilling nonsense. You may notice that many of the translation theories regarding the book assume that a complex code was used, as the language is unidentifiable. However, many people who have studied the Voynich Manuscript believe it's some kind of reference guide or wellness guide, perhaps aimed at women. This begs the question, if the Voynich Manuscript is simply a 15th century version of Goop, why would it be coded so mysteriously at all? Wouldn't it just be written in Latin or another common European text of the time? After all, some of the most brilliant code crackers of the 20th century have taken a stab at the Voynich Manuscript and come up with nothing. Alan Turing, known as the father of modern computer science, and perhaps more famously as Benedict Cumberbatch in The Imitation Game, tried to solve the code and failed. If the man who solved the Nazi Enigma code and helped the Allies win World War II couldn't decipher the Voynich manuscript, perhaps it isn't really a code at all. This brings up another big theory. Could the Voynich manuscript be one of the world's oldest hoaxes? It might seem ridiculous that someone would painstakingly write and illustrate 240 pages as a joke to frustrate academics five centuries later. The creation of the Voynich manuscript would have taken an incredibly long time, in an era where lifespan was usually under 40 and TB and dysentery ran rampant. Even with multiple people writing it, the book would have taken at least two to eight scribes several years of work to create. Why would anyone care to create such an elaborate hoax? Well, it's possible that writing the Voynich manuscript could have made someone a lot of money. After all, it was not unknown for mystics and cult leaders to come up with complex, incomprehensible scripts and claim they were divine then sell them to the highest bidder. Historians point out that Rudolf II, the first presumed owner of the Voynich Manuscript, was very interested in the occult and alchemy. Two men that were around his court at the time, John Dee and Edward Kelly, were self-proclaimed mystics and publicly proclaimed conmen. 
Could they have made up the Voynich manuscript to trick Rudolf II into providing a massive payday? Accounts at the time state that the ruler paid 600 gold ducats for the book, equivalent to about $90,000 today. Though it's never definitively been proven that Dee and Kelly sold him the manuscript, this kind of cash would have been a great incentive for the two fraudsters to come up with the Voynich manuscript as a hoax. However, this theory creates a major problem with the book's timeline. Though the Voynich manuscript has been dated to the early 1400s, the two con men didn't allegedly sell the book to Rudolf II until the late 1500s, or was it for the previous 150 years? And if it was a hoax created by Dee and Kelly, that means that they wrote the strange, incomprehensible text years after the pages were made. So why were 240 pages of vellum sitting around blank yet preserved for 150 years before the two men found them? In any case, Rudolph eventually lost his trust in the two men and exposed Kelly as a fraud. Things came to a head when he asked the mystic to go produce gold using methods of alchemy Kelly claimed he knew. And when Kelly tried to create gold using alchemy, he, well, he couldn't. In return, Rudolph imprisoned him in a tall tower that Kelly eventually fell out of, perhaps with assistance. The other problem with the theory is that many academics argue the writing in the book has identifiable semantic patterns. These make it more likely to be an actual language than a hoax. Other cryptographers argue that it could be a sophisticated hoax made to resemble a language pattern, and the debate goes back and forth with no clear answer or solution, as with most aspects of the Voynich manuscript. Perhaps the biggest reveal of the Voynich book so far is that academics can be a really stubborn group. So what else can be found in this indecipherable book to help us understand it? Well, there's the illustrations for one. The Voynich drawings range from plant species and planets to a series of naked women in green pools. Based on the drawings, the book can roughly be divided into six sections, herbal, astronomical, biological, cosmological, pharmaceutical, and recipes. Can't the drawings of plants in the book help give us an indication of where it may have been written? Weirdly enough, identifying the plants of the Voynich manuscript has only made the book's origins more mysterious. Most people believe the Voynich book was created in Italy or in Central Europe. Experts trying to match the book's plants with species common to that area have run up against many problems, including the fact that most plant drawings seem to be an amalgamation of many different species. The other issue is that some plant species may have been present 600 years ago and are likely extinct by now and therefore unidentifiable. However, one man named Arthur Tucker, who is the co-director of the Claude E. Phillips Herbarium at Delaware State University, identified 37 of the 303 plants in the Voynich Manuscript and claims they are native to Central America. This theory creates a lot more issues than it solves. Mainly, how would Central Europeans create a book that identified plants in the Americas, as they wouldn't know of the Americas' existence for at least another 50 years? At this point, it seems that one of the most far-fetched theories regarding the origin of the Voynich Manuscript might not be so extreme after all. What if the book is an alien creation? Let's look at the facts. It's written in a language that not a single historian or linguistic expert can identify. If it's a code, the most brilliant cryptographers in the world have been unable to solve it. In addition, some historians allege that the detailed drawings of planets and star systems in the Voynich manuscript wouldn't be possible in the early 1400s, as humans didn't yet know about some of the planetary motions depicted in the book. However, there are a few problems with that theory as well. First of all, as anyone who watched Arrival knows, if we ever do come into contact with aliens, hey. their systems of writing, language, and communication are likely to be extremely different than ours. If aliens choose to write a codex of biology and astronomy as seen on Earth, the chances they would choose to do it with ink on vellum in what appears to be a slow handwritten style are very, very low. 
One would imagine if aliens had the technology to get to Earth, they would not have alien scribes doing this kind of work on paper. They would probably just be able to absorb the information and immediately mentally transfer it to everyone in the species. So what is the Voynich Manuscript after all? Was it a hoax by two con men to make money off a spiritual European ruler? A book written in code no one has been able to crack yet? Or is it an insight into a language and culture that has been completely lost to time, to the point where not one historian or linguist working today is able to recognize the only evidence of its remains? The Voynich Manuscript is currently housed at the Beinecke Library at Yale University, and many of its pages are available online to the public. We may never know what secrets the Voynich Manuscript holds unless you, dear reader, end up being the one to crack the code. Are you up for the challenge? While you brainstorm how to show off by solving one of the greatest mysteries of all time... Oh, it's still supposedly not um, cracked. Well, we're going to look at some other points. Have you guys ever heard of uh, the infant Don Enrique Navigador? <laughs> he was the son well he was the fourth child of um, the Portuguese king John I who founded the house of Aviz um, he was Prince Henry the navigator he was actually born on March 4th 1394 and he was the one that actually introduced sugarcane to Brazil. Wait, what? I thought no one went to South America before Magellan and all them. You're talking 13, early 1400s, Tori. Back then, this navigador would have to circumvent a lot of things. And they would go off, the Cape, off Cape Cod, South Africa. Which means that they went to places that we think were not visited, but were. He was actually quite an interesting fellow. And his um, navy was quite bold. He is alleged to have been the first person to um, land in Antarctica. Oh, that's just a hypothetical so i just wanted to make that mention as um we listen to the next quest about the secrets that are hidden in the voynich manuscript which remember was purchased by a book dealer in 1912 and nobody knows who wrote it they've carbon dated it to somewhere in the 1400s and they don't know what language it is. They assume it's Semitic based. They assume it may be Latin based. They really have no idea. And then all the plants look super weird. And then there's women in green goo talking about how women, how a woman was giving a direction. I mean, if Google's AI was anywhere right, this is quite interesting. Gets a little bit more fascinating. Really bizarre. If you just leaf through this facsimile we have here, it's written on vellum, um, which is animal skin, and it's roughly coloured and rather amateurish. Tucked inside the pages, Voynich found an old letter. It's the first clue for any investigator trying to understand the meaning and origin of the manuscript. The letter revealed that the Jesuits had owned the book for 250 years, 
and had been trying to decipher the strange text and identify the bizarre illustrations. The manuscript was sent to a scientist and linguist, Athanasius Kircher, hoping that he would throw some light on what the manuscript was about. Kircher was a leading Jesuit scholar, one of the greatest of all time. And the Jesuits, who count the current Pope among their number, are renowned as the intellectuals of the Catholic Church, determined in their pursuit of knowledge. It's a mysterious book. It's the type of thing that would have enthralled Kircher. He was fascinated by everything. In 1912, Wilfred Voynich found an ancient manuscript written in a bizarre code. He also discovered a letter with the book. Written in 1666, it reveals one of the previous owners had a theory about its author, a potentially vital clue to the book's meaning. The said book belonged to the Emperor Rudolf. He believed the author was Roger Bacon, the Englishman. Roger Bacon was a 13th century monk with a fascination for alchemy. The attempt to turn ordinary metals into gold. The church considered it heresy. Roger Bacon was always treading in that area. There's a possibility that the whole Voynich manuscript is secrets of alchemy. So the assumption was for Voynich that Bacon might well have had to mask any of his researches and therefore put it into cipher. Cryptographer Gordon Rugg, who has a detailed knowledge of medieval cipher techniques, is not convinced. Leading modern codebreakers have run the text of the Voynich manuscript through software and then they've looked for patterns every 10, 20, 40 characters and they've found nothing. If the book is written in code, it's more advanced than anything modern computers and expert codebreakers can unlock. A feat that seems impossible with the techniques available to Roger Bacon. What if there is another explanation? That the text is not a code at all, but simply has no meaning. Gordon Rugg believes there was a powerful motive to do just that. In the Middle Ages, books of wonders were worth a lot. I think it's almost certainly a hoax. Hoaxing the Voynich manuscript for money would make excellent sense. There is evidence to support this theory. In the letter Voynich found with the manuscript is a reference to one very wealthy owner of the book. The said book belonged to the Emperor Rudolf and that he presented to the bearer who bought the book 600 ducats. Rudolf II was the Holy Roman Emperor. He was obsessed with the occult and was a tempting target for any hoaxers. Even 600 ducats. £50,000 today would be a small price for him to pay for the manuscript if he believed it contained the encrypted secrets of alchemy. Prime suspects in this hoax theory are John Dee and Edward Kelly, two Englishmen involved in the scheme to turn copper into gold. Kelly was in Prague, the capital of the Holy Roman Empire, in the 1590s when Rudolf reigned. Could he and Dee have hoaxed the manuscript to sell to the emperor? To test the likelihood of this theory, scientists at the University of Arizona carbon-dated samples of the animal skin, or vellum, 
the manuscript was written on. Carbon dating is a powerful tool in the quest to solve ancient mysteries. Measuring the decay of radioactive carbon-14, it can determine the age of organic matter, like the vellum of the manuscript. Would it determine a date of the manuscript and add weight to the theory that it was a 1590s hoax? Well, we dated four vellum pages distributed throughout the book and found that all four of those pages had very tightly clustered radiocarbon dates. And the radiocarbon age is 1404 AD to 1438 AD at 95% confidence. This carbon dating evidence blows away the idea that Dee and Kelly hoaxed the manuscript. It was written over a hundred years before they were born. So the Voynich manuscript appears a genuine mystery. In his mission to decipher it, Jerry Kennedy tries one final approach and takes a closer look at its strange illustrations. The biggest section is rare looking plants, but they are incredibly bizarre, very strange looking things. Jerry takes a copy of the manuscript to Kew Gardens in London, an internationally renowned center of botanical research it has over 30,000 living plants, the world's largest collection. If Q scientists can identify the plants in the manuscript, it might reveal its meaning and origin. This almost looks like it's grafted onto the base of the plant, but you wouldn't in nature see anything happening like that. So I think you can safely say that these are, are plants of invention rather than, than real plants. Look like nothing on earth. Look like nothing on earth. The plants look like no species known to man, but there's something else otherworldly amongst the illustrations. There's also a section which one would want to call sort of cosmological or astrological. There's a spiral that some people have said clearly must be Andromeda. Andromeda is a spiral galaxy. It's the closest one to Earth's and bears a striking resemblance to the Voynich diagram. Yet it is millions of light years away. Its spiral shape is only visible with modern high-powered telescopes. This technology didn't exist when the Voynich manuscript was written in the early 15th century. How could anyone on Earth draw a galaxy we had yet to discover? It appears as if there must be some underlying sense to it. Well, that must be something underlying. Correct. Very correct. Now, here's another one where they actually go into the ink, I believe, and research that, if I'm not mistaken, because we need to talk about this manuscript a bit, because this will dovetail Antarctica into the conversation. <laughs> You're going to say, what? Well, like I said, whenever I have time on my hands, I look to it. Do you know who else actually um, dabbled in this before their death? I'm going to leave that as, a, as an open-ended, I'm not answering that yet question. You'll see. But I want you to listen to this report, which is quite interesting. Very very interesting. It was actually done quite well, too. I enjoyed this. It's without a doubt one of the most mysterious, inexplicable, and downright intriguing objects on planet Earth today. It has been called a message from God, a hoax, an elaborate secret code, the product of mental illness, a treatise written in a lost language, a guide to an alien world, or simply the notebook of an eccentric scientist 
written in his own indecipherable shorthand. Okay, I just wanted to say, I never show you things that aren't relevant or will be relevant. I hope you guys understand that. I never have. I, I remember getting a lot of emails. Why don't we look at, you know, her talking about her coat hook with Chief Justice Roberts? You see how important Kagan was later? Why are we talking about Marbury? I mean, it's quite interesting. Do you see how important it is now? I'm just saying I never ask questions I already know the answer to. <laughs> and I surely don't show my listeners any information that won't be relevant. This is going to be a foundation for something that is to come. Since it came to the attention of the public a little more than a hundred years ago, it has been served as the inspiration for a plethora of novels, a classical music album, several works of art, and at least one TV episode. It's even appeared as an Easter egg hidden away in more than one popular video game franchise. And yet, this strange artifact, whose story spans centuries and touches the lives of some of history's most colourful characters, is nothing more than a simple book about the size of a modern paperback. If you were to visit Yale's Beinecke Rare Book and Manuscript Library, where the Voynich Manuscript resides today, and leaf through its 240-odd vellum pages, you would find a curious, flowing script in lightly faded browning surrounded on almost every page by weird and wonderful painted images depicting people, plants, animals, astrological diagrams, curious contraptions, maps to strange lands, and much more. The odd little book is split into six distinct sections, botanical, astrological, balneological, which relates to medicinal springs, cosmological, pharmaceutical, and recipes. All of this sounds interesting enough so far, but alone, it doesn't explain why the Voynich manuscript has attained the status of a true enigma. Nor does the fact that it's over 600 years old, there are plenty of older books out there, tucked away on dusty bookshelves in great libraries across the world, and nobody's thought to make music about any of those. No. What makes the Voynich manuscript so special is much simpler than all of that. Nobody alive has ever been able to read it. Or should I say, nobody alive has ever been able to understand it. Now, you may not be able to read the Voynich Manuscript, but you can enjoy thousands of other books with today's sponsor, Blinkist. It probably wouldn't surprise you if I told you there's little I love more than reading non-fiction books. But these days, I rarely get the time. I'm sure you're in the same boat. Well, I've been trying out Blinkist, and it's been a game changer for my daily routine. I listen to a blink whilst I'm having my breakfast every morning, and by the time I've drunk that, you can literally workflow even further with Blink as a species. The first offers diligent language experts, learned art historians, and a whole cadre of internet sleuths. Not one person has ever been able to make sense of a single word written within the Voynich Manuscripts pages. And its strange alphabet has never been seen anywhere else in the world. And then there are those painted images I mentioned. Whilst the people look familiar enough, most of them are rendered completely naked and could stand to lose a pound or two. The plants are much less easily identified. Not a single one of them bears more than a passing resemblance to any of the species found here on Earth. 
Exactly who wrote the Voynich Manuscript, in which language and for what reason, is completely unknown. And just what the hell it's all supposed to mean is a question that has captivated imaginations across the world ever since the book was uncovered by the man it's now named after, Wilfred Voynich. Voynich was born in November 1865 to Polish parents in the city of Telshi, which was part of the Russian Empire at the time and can be found today in Lithuania. He was something of a free spirit in his younger days, getting himself arrested in his early 20s thanks to his membership of the social revolutionary organization known as the Proletariat, which ultimately led to his imprisonment in Irkutsk, Siberia, a place famous today for its historic town centre and for being abysmally difficult to defend in risk. Voynich was a resourceful man and he managed to escape before his five-year sentence was up. Keen to put some distance between himself and his turbulent past, he made his way to Hamburg, where he traded his last good waistcoat and a rather dashing pair of glasses for a ticket on a ship bound for England. Voynich dabbled in a little more revolutionary work over the next few years from his new home in London, but perhaps deciding he'd had enough of being shot at and stabbed, and no doubt grown complacent on a steady diet of tea crumpets and remarkably orderly queuing, he finally decided to leave his wild days behind him. A highly educated man who is said to have spoken 18 languages, he decided to settle down and get himself a real job as an antiquarian bookseller. Voynich also found love in London, marrying another former revolutionary called Ethel Boole, author of multi-million selling novel The Gadfly, and daughter of George Boole, whose Boolean logic is credited with having laid the foundations for the information age. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. All the famous people in the past knew each other. It was in 1912 that Voynich made the discovery, which he is known for today, whilst visiting the Villa Mondragoni, which lies about 20 kilometers outside of Rome. Villa Mondragoni was owned by a group of Jesuits at the time of Voynich's visit, and despite their grand and prestigious setup, the imposing Villa Mondragoni was the site where the Gregorian calendar was first developed. It turned out that the Jesuits were a little strapped for cash. Voynich was more than happy to line their pockets in return for a chance to go home with a few of the rare manuscripts stored in the villa's library. Amongst the 30 items he purchased that day was the book now known as the Voynich Manuscript. It was immediately clear to Wilfred Voynich that this latest addition to his collection was old and more than a little strange. In the hundred or so years since he came into possession of this now legendary artifact, many people, including Voynich himself, have attempted to piece together the manuscript's origins. Its first known owner is thought to have been Rudolf II. Or to give him his full title, Rudolf II, Holy Roman Emperor, King of Hungary and Croatia, King of Bohemia and Archduke of Austria. I think I'll stick with Rudy. Frequent viewers of this channel will be delighted to hear that Rudy was a member of the infamous House of Habsburg, inbreeders extraordinaire, and that, yes, he did indeed have a chin like a sledgehammer. Rudy is thought to have come into possession of the Voynich manuscript towards the end of the 16th century, when it was already some 200 years old. And he is said to have been so intrigued by its curious contents that he bought it from the previous owner for the princely sum, or should that be multiple kingly sum, of 600 Venetian ducats. 
That's a little more than two kilograms of solid gold. Not bad for a tatty old book. King Rudy was a character, to say the least. He's known to have kept a lion and a tiger as part of his prized royal menagerie, and he was so fond of the beasts that they were allowed to roam freely around his home, Castle Prague. Yeah, that went about as well as you might expect. But Rudy wasn't a bad guy, and he was more than happy to pay compensation to the survivors of the unsurprisingly frequent attacks and playful maulings his favourite pets dished out. Or, more commonly, to the deceased's grieving and, no doubt, irrecoverably traumatised family. He was also a devoted alchemist, and pursued a lifelong quest to get his hands on the Philosopher's Stone. Tragically unaware as he was that said mythical object was hidden under a trap door guarded by a free-headed dog at Hogwarts all along. Rudy was also keen on astrology and even commissioned a personal horoscope from French astrologer Nostradamus. Armed with this priceless insight into his own future, you think Rudy would have been prepared when his own brother moved against him to take the throne some years later, but apparently not. King Rudolf II died nine months later, stripped of all his powers, and the mysterious book he'd paid a literal king's ransom for was passed to his personal doctor, Jacobus of Tepence, whose signature, so faded with age, it's only visible under ultraviolet light, can still be found hidden within the Voynich Manuscripts pages today. From Jacobus, the manuscript made it into the hands of George Baresh, a Czech alchemist, who would spend the next 20 years of his life attempting to unearth its secrets, chipping away at the mystery in vain until the day he died. Baresh bequeathed the manuscript to a trusted friend in his will, who, in turn, passed the book on to his mentor, the celebrated 17th century scientist Aphasius Kircher, known as the Master of a Hundred Arts. It seemed like a smart move, Kircher was a learned man who had recently shot to fame as the first person to decipher Egyptian hieroglyphics. Who better to uncover the secrets of an unreadable manuscript? The plan did have one slight flaw though. Despite his claims, Kircher had not in fact deciphered Egyptian hieroglyphics at all, and the majority of his assumptions and translations were later found to be completely false. Make that master of 99 arts then. The Voynich manuscript seems to have proven impenetrable to Kircher, and here it disappeared back into relative obscurity, stashed away in the library of Collegio Romano, where Kircher worked. The manuscript was to remain there, no doubt gathering a thick layer of dust, for more than 200 years, until Rome was captured by Victor Emmanuel II, one-time King of Sardinia, and eventual King of Italy, who promptly confiscated the Collegio Romano's library. Luckily, the college's rector at the time managed to rescue some of the library's most important books, including the Voynich Manuscript, transferring the lot to the Villa Mondragoni, where, as we've seen, Voynich would be along to find it some 46 years later. Now, run a simple Google search and you'd be forgiven for thinking the Voynich Manuscript had been solved half a hundred times. There are endless articles and a good dose of YouTube videos, even documentaries out there, claiming the 600-year mystery has finally been defeated. But every time some young hopeful comes up with a new and promising theory, 
the scientific community stoically steps up to the scholarly plate and bats it out of the park. The very first such claim was put forward by William Newbold, a professor of philosophy at the University of Pennsylvania and a cryptography enthusiast who was hired by Voynich himself to unlock the secrets of his prized possession. Newbold's research led him to the conclusion that the writings within the manuscript was, in fact, meaningless, but that a secret code based on ancient Greek shorthand and visible only with the use of a magnifying glass had been hidden within the letters themselves, disguised as natural patterns within the ink. Ingenious, Newbold claims to have translated entire paragraphs of the text using the code, which reveals the author to be none other than English polymath and Franciscan friar, Roger Bacon. This theory has, unfortunately, been thoroughly debunked. It turns out those secret markings cleverly disguised as patterns within the ink were, in fact, yeah, just naturally occurring patterns within the ink. Who'd have thought it? Still, the idea that the Voynich manuscript is some kind of highly elaborate cipher persists, and some of the greatest codebreakers to have ever lived and breathed have had a crack at solving it hoping to uncover some long-lost secret hidden within its pages. Perhaps the most prominent is William F. Friedman. Considered by some to be the greatest cryptologist of the modern age, Friedman was a brilliant man. His team broke Japan's cipher, codenamed Purple, during the Second World War, and he was instrumental in the founding of the NSA in the US, where he was installed as its first chief cryptologist. Friedman was so intrigued by the Voynich manuscript that he put together a crack team of cryptologists to unlock its secrets. This pet project spanned four decades of Friedman's life, but despite all his brilliance and dedication, he eventually concluded that solving the Voynich manuscript was in fact impossible, suggesting it was written in a made-up language. Friedman isn't the only one to conclude that the manuscript can't be solved for the simple reason that there's nothing to solve that we can't extract any meaning from its strange pages because there was no meaning there in the first place. So they claim that this book, that no one knows where it came from, but it is suggested, well, as history shows, that it could have been picked up by this navigating prince. And what was intriguing is this navigating prince had always said tales. He always talked about a land that was frozen with animals he had never seen. You mean like Antarctica, where is the only place we see penguins, which actually intrigued the crown to go out and search. Do you know when Australia was actually discovered? Because Australia was discovered. Yes. This is something interesting. When was Australia discovered? Someone has to think, when did the Cape of Good Hope and the Cape Horn, where they were looking at in the 15th and 16th centuries, where the Portuguese went, when was Australia really discovered and then taken over, of course, by the British? And what does Australia have in common in regards to their animal kingdoms with the rest of the world? Pretty much nothing. They have um, different beasts. And so the world expanded when they discovered Australia, even though Portuguese uh, navigator Lopez Gonzalez 
1973 had proven that uh, the equator had been crossed, right? Um, and we have all these. We have all this knowledge. You just have to piece it together. So then you have to think to yourself, we have a language here that nobody can crack. Obviously, you can't crack because it's not similar to something you've seen. With plants that kind of look familiar but don't look familiar. But if you go back, 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 back in time, they look like, it looks kind of odd. If you actually look at the drawings of the Voyevich manuscript, which... I detest saying that because it's not his. It also shows women, naked women, like the guy said, that could use a little bit of dieting, right? <laughs> Bathing in some green fluid connected to plants, which is so weird. So bizarre. So bizarre. So this is history being uncovered, and you have to think to yourself, so someone would spend years and years to write this manuscript on vellum, and it was just made up rubbish that looks like a pretty great made up rubbish thing right i mean it all it is all very consistent looks like a language but a language you just don't understand and to think we have oriental languages that look nothing like cyrillic languages and nothing like latin based languages they're all different chinese is actually very mathematically precise cyrillic is another type of writing Arabic scriptures, Hebrew, all different writings that for some reason have been decoded based on other ones. Oh, I can decode Chinese based on Cyrillic and I can decode Latin based on Arabic. I can decode, you know, Hebrew based on Chinese, whatever it is. But why can't they decode this is the question. Just a lot of rather pretty gibberish. Some proponents of this theory believe that Voynich himself is behind the fabrication. After all, a lost text with links to the likes of Francis Bacon would likely be worth a fortune. Something an antique book dealer would know better than anyone. On the face of it, it's quite a compelling argument. Voynich had a clear motive, as well as a know-how to pull it off and make it look good. But the Voynich manuscript isn't just good, it's perfect. And if it really is a hoax, it's one of the most elaborate ever conceived. For a start, the manuscript's pages have been radiocarbon dated to between 1404 and 1438. The idea that Voynich might have been able to get his hands on 240 untouched sheets of 500-year-old vellum made from calfskin in 1912 to turn into a book is near inconceivable. And considering radiocarbon dating wasn't developed until the late 1940s, long after Voynich first publicized his find, it's difficult to see why he would have bothered trying to source such an old material to write on in the first place. The inks and paints used in the manuscript also exactly match those used in early 15th century Europe. Something else we've been able to prove only with modern techniques. And the same attention to detail seems to have been paid in the book's language too, which demonstrates statistical features we would expect to see in real natural language, features we also didn't understand back in 1912. Wilfred Voynich may have had the motive, but he would have needed to be in the possession of the predictive powers of Notre Dame himself to have avoided all the uh, 
yet-to-be-discovered scientific traps that lay waiting to reveal any deception on his part decades later. The Voynich Manuscript, it seems, is very much the genuine article. And to this day, professionals and amateurs alike continue to dedicate countless hours trying to finally solve its many mysteries. And many claim to have solved it once and for all, even presenting examples of fully translated pages. But there's always the inherent issue of how can we trust the veracity of a translation when the only person in the world who claims it's correct is the translator himself. The truth is, so far, every attempt at decoding it has either been declared to be false by an independent body or not peer-reviewed at all, and thus no more than an unverified hypothesis. In 2016, we even let an AI have a crack at it, completely in vain, and in some ways, perhaps that's for the best. Whilst the true meaning behind the unknown text remains a mystery, the Voynich Manuscript will continue to stimulate our collective sense of wonder and elicit excited scholarly debate. The moment we figure out that it's actually the world's most ancient and vulgar collection of that's-what-she-said jokes, the charming spell will be broken. Thanks for watching. So what is it that's in that manuscript that everyone claims they've decoded but haven't decoded that um, has baffled AI as well as, you know, cryptographers of this planet for centuries? <laughs> and it shows plants that look familiar but are not, that look something, you know, that comes out of the imagination and tomorrow We'll uh, listen to other people that have checked the pigment of uh, the color used on the book. It's really important to understand we must learn to crawl before we run. And that uh, answers are usually there. Like I've said before, you do not learn new things. You just understand how to unlock that software of knowledge that's already within you. There is no such thing as junk DNA. It's just DNA you don't understand. It's just programming you don't understand and this is why brainwashing and all these things are called programs because they're telling you without telling you and this will dovetail into what is to come which is this after World War II, the United States quickly slipped back into a false sense of security. But this stance left unsolved the problems of the hostility between the world's free nations and those under communist rulers. Then in 1950, the Cold War turned hot. Soon after, the nuclear age dawned. On the brink of Armageddon, one man chose to lead the free world by waging peace. That was interesting, wasn't it? Who was it that waged that war, that secret war? Well, I'll leave you with that. They claim it's Eisenhower. Maybe he picked off, picked up where someone left off, and now we have our modern-day secret war. Again, I have talked about this before, my time in Europe and having cosmic clearance. I've also mentioned how I was looking for a treaty between our nation and 
now I can call her my friend, the actual ambassador of the nation of Granada, I was looking and stumbling upon to find that specific treaty with Granada and stumbled upon something quite different that one day I'll talk about. On that note, guys, God bless. For those of you on Twitch, DJ Steph, I know she has Twerk Tuesdays, but on Wednesdays, it's Tori Says Show After Party. Whoa. So we're not going to be reading her today because tomorrow it's actually Wednesday Tori Says Show After Party. So we're going to raid someone different. This is where we're learning and exploring. And I found someone that I think would be interesting to raid. Haven't heard their music, but for those of you on Twitch, stand by. I'm going to fight them all. Seven Nation Army couldn't hold me back They're gonna rip it off Taking their time right behind my back And I'm talking to myself at night Because I can't forget Back and forth through my mind Behind a cigarette And the message coming from my eyes says